like a hustle sounds so fun and like, you know, you're boogieing and it's kind of like comes from hip hop genealogy. And it's actually like the opposite. It's like, you're usually running yourself ragged and, but they're very like physical and fun. A lot of these words are like nimble financially. Uh, Uh You know, there's words like nimble, flexible. They have a kind of physicality to them because it is, they're demanding physically, you know? So you're running (laughs) yourself ragged with these hustles. And and then I started to look at my own hustle. I was like, yeah, I have a lot of them too. You know, I mean, I have, I run a nonprofit profit, but then I'm also right. You know, I'm talking to you right now. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there'll be, you know, gosh, one hopes they're speaking, right? There's one hopes all layers of life. There's that. And then of course, what starts to get left out of this is like, how are you covering your daycare and your family costs? And then you're around less because you're doing all these hustles, you know, and and you don't build as much of a community because you're not, you know, with one coherent group of colleagues. Jewish Money Matters, episode 309, debunking the myth of the American dream with Alisa Kord, author of squeezed and bootstrapped. You're listening to Jewish Money Matters, the podcast where Jewish wisdom and spirituality meet your money and your business. Money is a means to serve God in this world with joy, to build a life that leaves an imprint way beyond our time in this world. I want you to discover the secrets to Jewish wealth, to gain practical and spiritual tools to break free from the shackles of financial worry to design the joyful, rich life that your soul desires. Welcome to Jewish Money Matters. I'm Yael Trush, and I'm so glad you're here. Today, we're taking a more macro look at our finances. We're addressing the American dream and the idea of bootstrapping with economic journalist Elisa Quart. Elisa has covered economic hardship in much of her acclaimed work, including her last book, Squeezed, Why Our Families Can't Afford America, and her upcoming book, Bootstrapped, Liberating Ourselves from the American Dream. She's the executive director of the nonprofit, The Economic Hardship Reporting Project. What is wrong with the idea of bootstrapping? How is it not serving us today? I have to say, this was new to me because I tended to have a positive look at the idea of bootstrapping. So this was a fascinating conversation. The problem with the grit narrative, as well as the self-actualized, I did it myself narrative, can the experience of our Jewish immigrant grandparents be replicated in America today? We discussed the middle precariat, those considered middle-class professionals living a precarious economic life or just barely making it underemployed and or saddled with debt. If the solutions that Elisa proposes are largely social reform of a macro um, level, where does that leave much of our individual efforts at side gigs and side hustles and all those things to help alleviate financial challenges. In an unexpected twist, our conversation really made me value and appreciate the gift of community, Jewish community specifically, and more specifically, as it applies to those of us who, for whom Jewish observance centers so much around a vibrant communal life where the interconnectedness can mitigate and alleviate so much of the issues that Elisa presents today as plaguing secular American culture. Fascinating and fun conversation with Elisa Quart. (music) 
Lisa Quartz. Welcome to Jewish Money Matters. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Oh, thank you so much, Yael. I'm really, really excited to get to talk to you. I mean, you really have done so much work around social justice and the well-being of people in terms of economics and, you know, their financial situation. And you you are the head of a nonprofit called the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. I want to hear about that. But you're also the author of several books, including Squeezed, Why Our Families Can't Afford America. And your latest book is about to come out exactly in a month, actually. And that's Bootstrapped, Liberating Ourselves from the American Dream. I'm looking forward to that. So Bootstrapped, it sounds to me like the perfect sequel to Squeezed, perhaps. I have the the cover here. <laughs> oh, <laughs> look at it. Like, yeah. <laughs> you need to put a poster in the background. <laughs> oh, yeah. I guess I should create like art that goes behind you me. totally have to. Totally have to. Is that to. what people do? Yes, that's what people do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, baby. Hold on a second. Can you think I can do that? No, you could, you could totally use my I, virtual background. I don't know. How do I oh, do this? I don't, I don't know. But I know people usually I, I interview a lot of people and they write away in their background somewhere behind they have like a poster with their cover of their book or whatever. Oh, so boy. Something to think about during this next year as you're promoting the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very much so. Okay. So anyway, so because I feel like since I did my last book, there's been obviously the Zoom revolution. So exactly, things have changed, Alisa. Yeah, there's a whole like just kind of new set of artifacts. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. So so let's talk about maybe the themes that perhaps. I mean, I suspect there were themes or questions that you may have not had the chance to explore and answer and squeeze that you felt needed to to be delved into that warranted a second book and that now you're presenting in, in boots, Bootstrap. What might those be? What's the link between the two books? Right. So when I was writing my last book and, you know, when it published, uh, a lot of people responded to the characters, so the subjects of my book, and why did they not have a college education? Why did they have a college education? Why did they accrue medical debt? Why did they want to own their own home? They had all these kind of... uh blaming questions for the ordinary things that the people uh, that I'd interviewed wanted in their lives or the sort of mistakes they made, like that they had multiple partners and that they'd had a child on their own, right? Um, Or even that they'd gone to school in literature (laughs) and like they had had the temerity to not be uh, somebody or wanted to be in media like we are, like that they had not wanted to do STEM. Uh, and the truth of the matter is if you're 50 or you're 45, like that, that wasn't very clear then that this was, mm-hmm. this path was, um, uh, disastrous, right? For a lot of people. So, so there's so much of a culture of blame. And especially for some of the people who contributed my organization, the economic hardship reporting project, they were, just, you know, people would have, are some of our writers had been on snap. They'd experienced homelessness. It was, why had you experienced homelessness? You know, why did you have a mental break? Why, again, did you have kids with different fathers or why were you raising your child by yourself if you're a woman, right? It's like, forget mm-hmm. like all the deadbeat dads out there, right? And I, I just was like, this is a narrative. This isn't just individuals who are being blamed. This is a, a pattern. And I wanted yeah. to know where it came from. Like, what, yeah. how did people start blaming, especially women who are struggling? How did this mm-hmm. happen? So, wow. So, so that's when you get to this notion of the American dream and something in the narrative of the American dream that is mythical that we need to debunk. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot that we need to debunk. For mm-hmm. starters, um, the original American dream, as it was coined in 1931, was not this uh, striving on your own kind of um, 
hard to execute, really. Uh, immigrants on their own working their way up storyline. Instead, it was much more communitarian. Uh, mm. it, it was, uh, John, uh, here I can get it for you. Actually, it was interesting. It's, it's just not, um, what did he say? He said, John Truslow Adams, uh, he, he, he kind of understood that things like, like merit, um, we're not going to necessarily get people where they wanted to go. And if you look at the Fortune 400, 500 list, you'll see that something like 60% of the people uh, had on some level been heirs, right? They had inherited their money. Mm. And that didn't mean they didn't work hard in addition, but there was a starting starting uh, space where people came from that made it much easier for them to thrive. And we mm-hmm. need to look at that and re- recognize that. And also we need to stop blaming ourselves. I think for me, some of this was, I call it radical self-help because uh-huh. you do start uh, with, if people do start with a owning property, if they do start with a gold-plated education or a name brand, family name, they're going to be in a different position than other people. And mm-hmm. I think part of the American dream story is, oh, that that's not how people become successful, but it is, it is uh, not everyone, but it is for many. So we just have to remind ourselves and remind each other that this is, the ground is not level. So interesting because, you know, uh, as I'm hearing you, I'm, I'm like having this aha moment, right? Because, you know, when, you, when we talk about this, this promise, this idea of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, um, it, it yeah it is central to that american dream story but i also mm-hmm. kind of see it as central to that jewish immigrant story right not Absolutely. just in america as in the united states but all over america central america south america canada i'm, I'm from the caribbean right australia many other countries right where Jews fled to and they built themselves up and their businesses literally from nothing, right? So I, in my head, I always thought about it as this positive thing, thing, but, but you're here to tell us we might want to rethink this. At least in today's America, this is not <laughs> the reality. Yeah. And so, okay. My grandparents came here. Uh, they were some of the, the, the only survivors of their uh, family. And they came here at different points, but um, they came to stay in the 30s, right? They just got out. Um, and they started a shoe store. They worked selling shoes. Um, so my joke is sort of bootstraps has a profound <laughs> psychoanalytic meaning for me. Because yeah. I, I, I spent a lot of time with them on their floor and they'd be playing with the, I'd be playing with the boots and the shoehorns and the, <sighs> like the the uh, leather polish, you know, um, and my grandfather's just like a well-made shoe because he, he could make a shoe. It was like mm-hmm. really important. And, you know, forget the sex in the city shoes. These are like really like <laughs> leather, you know, like look at that last. The last is the way they're shaped and look at that arch, you know. Um, so, yeah, and that they literally pulled themselves up by their shoe, shoe, shoe right. straps by my grandparents. Um, they But they worked six hours, uh, six days a week, uh, 10 hour days. My mother tells stories about being upstairs playing, drawing on the refrigerator because there weren't like fancy toys or anything. Uh, and what they got for it in the end was, uh, you know, they survived. They had a small Michelama apartment, uh, where they lived out their, uh, uh, old age and they helped pay for my college education, you know? Wow. And that was what, that what is what they got for their hard work. So yeah, they, I mean, I guess it was an American dream of a sort, you know, my grandma got to watch 
opera, you know, um, subscribe to the opera and stuff like that. But, you know, it, it wasn't wealth. It wasn't necessarily comfort either. I mean, it's a relative mm-hmm. comfort, but, mm-hmm. and that they are so much more likely their generation and my mother's generation to have that mobility that, uh, my generation and your generation and a lot of the listeners generation. I mean, they looked at mobility from people in the born in 1940s and they had a something like a 92% chance of rising in mobility and right. people born in the eighties had a 50% chance of rising of huh. mobility. So it really it, it is less possible to have the American dream now than it was. And I think right. that's another message. Yeah. We can't replicate those stories. Um, and, and listen, even hearing, even hearing the fact you said that they didn't build wealth, but the fact that they were able to help their granddaughter with their college education. I wonder if there's people like people in our generation are struggling to even have for retirement, let alone leave for their grandkids college education. Right. Right. Um, so, so, so then what's at the core of this? Um, things have changed. What, what, what are the systemic problems that you're seeing that, that, that is, that are causing this? Because as you discovered in your other book, we are squeezed <laughs> and, and bootstrapping is not, not helping us. Yeah. So, I mean, the problems there, obviously the cost of education, which has trebled even in public universities, um, the cost of uh, medical care, um, mm-hmm. but also, I mean, at this point with inflation, the cost of daily life, right. you know, going to a restaurant or um, renting an apartment. Um, obviously, home ownership uh, has also gotten much more expensive, especially in major cities in, um, that are desirable. Uh, and I think finally, there's become a like of less security for so-called middle-class professions, right. you know, and this is something I, I wrote about in squeeze, but I heard about a lot after too, from people who had read it. They're like, I'm an accountant and I'm having trouble surviving, or I'm like, I'm a lawyer. You know, these are right. things that pe- used to be kind used of, to be right. Yeah. Like be a lawyer, you know, yeah. no, you know, and they, um, and they had a lot of student debt too, obviously, because law school is so expensive. And so I think the breakdown, at least for people who expected to have greater security, um, the breakdown of those jobs, they become contingent. They're not like, they don't come with medical care. They don't come with 401ks, you know, mm-hmm. they're part-time work, whatever, uh, contract mm-hmm. work. So I think that that's been an element also. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You talk about this culture of blame. Um, I want to explore that a little bit, uh, cause that's, that's pretty troubling. Um, and, and also I, I did, I did see somewhere where you talk about your own personal experience as a journalist, not, not just the fact that you had the story of, you know, being a descendant, like your grandparents came here as survivors and all that, but your own experience as a journalist and realizing, oh, like waking up to the reality that financially, Things are not what you thought they might be. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So, I mean, I think my husband and I were freelancers, freelance writers, and the bottom fell out on the journalism market in the early, like mid 2010s, like, you know, 2006 or so. And then it got worse in 2008. And we just happened to have a kid in 2011. So, um, you used to you used to be able to get sustainable book deals and mm. um you, there were there were jobs to be had and now there are fewer and fewer there's something like 45,000 jobs were lost in media between 2005 and 2014 um and those were actual jobs so if you're a freelancer it's like much worse right, right. um 
So we had that and we didn't, and we didn't even realize like we had bought our own health insurance and we're like, Oh, we we owed money for the birth. We, and then of course we were hit by daycare, which is another huge cost. Um, So that was how I came to realize it. I experienced it myself. I was like, Oh, this is a level of precarity that I didn't even expect. I was Mm -hmm. thought about this. Um, Mm -hmm. And yeah. So, and this has had that this happens to a lot of people. Like I can kind of see generation after generation, like, people I know having kids and then suddenly waking up to this re- realization right. of just like daycare facilities can cost like $25,000 and still right. the daycare workers are underpaid and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Right, right, right. Or you thought your career that you invested and you got yourself into so much debt, you thought it was going to be returning more than it is. And when you talk about this middle precariat, define that for us. Um, so, so a precariat was coined by Guy Standing to reference people who were like, so there's a famous Marxist term, the proletariat, like the masses, right. you know, um, and that's the precarious masses. So it describes gig work. It describes, you know, retail work that there's no chance of like mobility or becoming management. Um, there's, um, uh, your hours are uh, chosen for you. And I've read about that in Squeezed where it's called just-in-time work where people will be um, working for Starbucks or Com- Abercrombie and Fitch. And I'm not sure if those examples are still pertinent, but they were when I wrote the book. Right. Uh, and they get, they get assigned by an algorithm, these hours. And sometimes the hour would be like seven at night and they'd have a kid and then they'd, they'd have a shift at like eight in the morning. And then they'd have to like run around between then. And so that led to directly to something called 24 hour daycare, which I called forever, forever daycare. And it was right. just like, um, it, for these facilities where kids would basically be living there, living in the daycare. Right. And meanwhile, um, parents working to pay for daycare basically and have nothing left. <laughs> yeah. And that, so I saw that and that, that was an element. And now I'm forgetting how I got caught in that story. <laughs> was that, no, because we were defining the middle precariat. Yes. Yes. Right. So, okay. So that's precariat, precariat. But then uh-huh. with the middle precariat, there are people, and that, that included some of the people who were at the 24-hour daycare I, I spent time in. There was like nurses, you know, and nurses, you know, people who should, by all lights, not, you know, yeah, maybe they work nights sometimes. So this is like every night they were right. having to put their kids in a 24 hour daycare and the daycares themselves were lovely. There's no, no knock on them. It wasn't like, but there's this part of, um, this was near Yonkers and there's a part of town where there was like three 24 hour daycares in like a three block radius. I was like, wow, oh. something's really happening here, mm-hmm. you know? And a lot of the people were working in like Home Depot or in, um, yeah, or we're nursing, and there's a lot of medical uh, facilities around there. So it was interesting that and and sad and it, and the middle precariat includes those people who uh, whose shifts are unstable, but also people whose job prospects are unstable, who have to be freelancers, who like have to hop from job to job, um, and don't have you know could their their gigs could. Uh, stop tomorrow, but then they'd mm-hmm. already invested in law school. They'd invested in journalism school. Uh, there were accountants, graphic artists, there's like a librarians, school mm-hmm. teachers, even there's a whole host of people for this, who this is true. Right. And, and we hear these stories about Americans who make, you know, even with a six figure salary, they're living paycheck to paycheck. Right. And, um, I think it's something like, I don't know, it's like less than half percent of Americans who are actually investing in the stock market. Um, so, you know, and by the way, a lot of my listeners 
um, are probably listening to this conversation, like <gasps> talk about the fact that we have to pay or we choose to pay private, private day school. And, you know, like there's a lot of, you know, Jewish people who like are like this exacerbates because, right? Like we, you know, we got the same student loans and we have the same jobs and we're paying like, kosher food and day school and camps and things that we're not willing to give up because they're so essential to our values. So it gets a little squeezed. <laughs> That's interesting. Guess- so are kosher stores a lot more expensive? Yeah. They are? Is it sort of like the whole, like whole foods, like kind of? Well, kosher, kosher meat is more expensive, right? Kosher products are more expensive because there's a whole set of right. production right, right. costs that go in right. it. So yeah, for sure. You know, a pack of chicken is not as cheap uh, a meat the meat is not as cheap even the the dairy is not as cheap so um there is there is a higher cost of living that comes with that you know I, i'm sticking to my values um thing so i'm sure everybody's like listening okay so so what do we do here because see is this to suggest that you know when when we talk about social change. Like we know there needs to be systemic changes and social changes. I mean, you can guide us through that. But I guess one of my questions is at the end of the day, we as individuals also have to do something to keep our head above water, right? And that often means the side gigs and the side hustles and building businesses on the side. Are we suggesting that we give up on those things and the DIY tactics to address our financial challenges? What's the message to people? Well, yeah, I mean, I call it the con of the side hustle in Bootstrapped. And the reason I call it that was for one thing, I was I spoke to a bunch of people who have multiple hustles and they were really trying to piece together a conventional life. And it was really hard. It's not, right. um, it's like, you know, we it's see not glamorous. Stories. Yeah, these stories <laughs> like this $2 million side hustle, like, oh, no, it's like, you know, some, like a mom selling CBD out of her car, you know, it's like, not, that's what the side hustle is, you know, it's, right. and um, I was sort of interested in also the language that people were using to describe uh, a lot of these very onerous things, like a hustle sounds so fun and yeah. like, you know, you're boogieing and it's kind of like comes from hip hop genealogy and it's actually like the opposite. It's like, you're usually running yourself ragged and, but they're very like physical and fun. A lot of these words are like nimble financially. Uh, uh-huh. they, you know, there's words like nimble, flexible. They're, they have a kind of physicality to them because it is, they're demanding physically, you yes. know, so you're running <laughs> yourself ragged with these hustles. And, lo- and then I started to look at my own hustle. I was like, yeah, I have a a lot of them too, you know. I mean, I have a, I run a nonprofit, but then I'm also writing. You know, I'm talking to you, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And there'll be, you know, a, gosh, one hopes they're speaking, right? There's a, one hopes all layers of life. There's that, and then of course, what starts to get left out of this is like, how are you covering your daycare and your family costs, right. and then you're around less because you're doing all these hustles, you know, and, and you don't build as much of a community because you're not, you know, with one coherent group of colleagues, right? Um, you don't have a social network in the same way. You're like, you know, all over the place. And there's there's other costs too to the side hustles. So yeah, what do I advise? I mean, I'm advising more broad-based things like mm-hmm, mutual aids. And honestly, within um Judaism, within organized religion, there's probably more of the kind of interdependence that I'm arguing right. for. In yes. fact, like I talked to one person who was um it was interesting, who was Hasidic for the and he felt like it was too interdependent. He was like, the only subject in the entire book was like, I, I, he's like, I'm too, it's just like, no, it's like, it's all about the group. It's not about the individual. Like mm-hmm. I'm fighting for my individualism, mm. um, which I thought was kind of interesting mm. uh, because that's not the experience of most secular and 
probably religious people who are less. Yeah, I, I can't relate to that experience, but I do relate to the fact that you say there is an, an element of community, definitely, that is very strong and can be very helpful, right? Where you have a network of moms who can help out, or you have a network of people who could give you business ideas or business help, or, you know, there is that communal aspect um, when you have that, you know, uh, that, that that is definitely going back to your initial we were talking about the American dream and you were saying, really, these people didn't build themselves up, you know, on them on their own. And there is a definite um, Jewish concept that we don't do this alone. Right. We don't we 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 work as a team. We help each other out. So that's very interesting. That came up. Also, I think a lot of classic Jewish good works like the Bund or like, you know, all this kind of stuff, you know, workman circle, you know, I'm just thinking of like yeah. my own family's uh, background, which is a right. little different than it's not religious, but it's right. uh, really was about mutualism and collectivism and, totally. and organizing and helping each other. And I mean, uh, and, you know, this, I still obviously really believe in that. That's like the part of my background that I'm right. on to the strongest. So, but it was, yeah, it was interesting when he said that. And he actually, the thing that he felt like he didn't get when from the community was honest conversations about money. Mm. So this, this, this. uh, Tell him to hear this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) No, this is in the book. This is a subject in the book. This is a, he's a very, yeah, he should come on the podcast. He should, but he's in like, he was in this therapy, this kind of therapy called critical therapy, where they talk about money and social class. And he said he was doing it because he felt in his Hasidic community, he wasn't allowed to talk about how hard uh, money, you know, survival was economically. That was the right. thing he wasn't allowed to talk to, talk about. Um, that's yeah, that's really interesting. Wow, 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 wow. So, so what are we looking at here? Broad, broad things, changes. What needs to happen? Give us some hope, because I do know that the book is a hopeful book. It's not all doom. Yeah, yeah. I, I hope it's not downer. <laughs> I, I worked hard to, um, because also I believe that we're in a moment politically where we can start you know, electing people or telling our political figures to stop emphasizing this. I did it myself thing, you know, like Horatio yeah, Alger. Great. It's all great. Right? Horatio Alger's stories, right? It's this rags to riches, supposedly, although I read this closely in the book and I read a lot of terrible Horatio Alger novels. He was an awful writer. He was an awful oh. writer. And yeah, not a good novelist. But he, his whole point was that, um, you know, actually these young men who rise up in the ranks, they, they're Tony the Tramp, or they have these names, uh, are often Paul the Peddler, and they're, they are helped by older men. So it's actually, it's not really, mm-hmm. that was the original Horatio Alger story. It came like bootstrapping and the American dream to mean something else. It was interpreted willfully to mean one young man surviving against the odds, mm-hmm. moving up in the world. So I think the idea is we need to question that, those accounts, you know, and And that's the optimistic thing that we can, that we, our politicians are starting to, I talk about um, people who have started to question bootstrapping publicly in their speeches, who aren't just saying, I came from a little town and look at me now. And, you know, instead said like, Mm -hmm. uh, there's a new uh, representative in in Washington state. And then there's one in, in Florida who both admitted to making uh, one admitted to making like $70,000 and running an auto body shop. Uh, and the other was saying that he couldn't afford to rent a, an apartment in DC until his paycheck started accruing. Right. So he was living with friends. And I, I thought, I was like, this is cool. This is the kind of, we need to hear this. Like, let's stories, dissipate right. the shame. And it, it, part of the reason that the 
our politicians don't say this is because 51% of them are millionaires in, mm-hmm. in the house. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we need to like probably hire people who don't come from those backgrounds and, and send them the message that these stories are not helping their citizens. They're just spreading shame and, and blame. Yeah. And we are so, we're so enamored by these success, overnight success stories, right? Mm-hmm. And these aspirational stories, going back to even bootstrapping businesses and side hustles, right? The overnight success and, you know, yeah, we just, rise and grind. You just have to grind. I, yeah. Right. Yeah. You grind for, you know, two years and look, you know, it happened. And it's like, no, it's not really not like that, but we love that story. We don't want the, it's almost like we just as Americans, like, we just don't want the other story, maybe because it feels too real. <laughs> yeah, and painful, and right. Um, yeah, and there's something. Um, I always say, if you're self, if you think you're self-made, call your mother. Like I do think that there's <laughs> right. My mom, my mom will tell you I'm not. She'll self-made. tell you. She'll, she'll love to tell you that I'm not. I'm sure she'll go. Oh. No, but no, but no, but that's part of it, right? There is something anti-matriarchal to me about it. That's right. like you don't come from anything, you know, right. you just right. created yourself. There's no woman there at the basis of, you know, there's no family or woman there that made you, right. um, that it's, it's very male. The obsession with being self-made I found. Ah, yeah. that's very interesting. Right. It's like a very male paradigm that we've all bought into. That's so interesting. Even you know, like women. I'm going to just, and girl right. bosses, a part of the problem with the whole yes. girl boss is it sort of aping this, this, masculinist language, right? But right. it doesn't really work because they're women and there's misogyny. And so people will end up turning on them. And I give a reading. I think this is why so many of them fell from grace during the pandemic mm-hmm. because they were using this language and they were still young women. And so mm-hmm. that you can't really get away with that. Yeah. 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 And because at the end of the day, also women wake up one day and we realize, oh, but I want to have this child and I want to raise this child and I want to be yeah. present with this And I'm going to have someone dependent on me and I'm going to be dependent on other people like that. So there's something about being uh, close to the experience, the raw experience of raising something really small and dependent. Right. Um, and also women, by the way, caretakers of their parents, right? Often are yes. elders and they, so sure. they have to deal with like a lot of really uh, great vulnerability yes. and and they have to learn how to love vulnerability mm-hmm. in themselves and others. I, I mean, that's a huge generalization, but I think it's much likelier for women to have to encounter people's vulnerability earlier than it is for men, like in their life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it's so statistically the number of women that care for their parents and care for children on a very close, intimate basis where it's like, so I call actually that caretaking the, the art of dependence. And mm. so the caretaking and the receiving of care, because I feel like, to me, it's a skill and a craft and a talent to be able to depend on people, mm. not just to be able to be independent. Right. Right. You're, you're right. And accept, accepting help, right? From others. Asking and- for help, accepting it and acknowledging it. And probably that's something that I've been learning more about, like how to say as an author, you know, a media person, you're trained to be like, this is my show <laughs> or like, like, this is my, right. Uh, like a reporter, this is my byline, but like all the people who've made your work, what it is, yeah. you know? So that was an exercise I did in the end of the book. I was like thinking a lot and there's like 20 people yeah. looked at this book more, you know, and I had designer friends who looked at the cover and, you know, like it's a really collective enterprise writing anything, honestly. So. 
writing anything, building anything. And that's the way, honestly, that's the way it should be. Um, So I I love this. We have to move away from this, um, this narrative of in self-made and independence and there, and get rid of that shame. There's no shame in depending on other people. (laughs) Yeah. Right. There's no shame in as if, if we follow the such, art of dependence. So beautiful, actually. Now there's honor. About, there's honor right? in it. So that the reframe is that it can be honorable and a sign of strength to know how to right? depend on people. Yeah. Give credit to those people who helped me out, who stood there by me, who gave me an encouraging word, an encouraging review, a critical review, like all the things. Are yeah, our daycare of- providers. Like I, I felt this when I wrote my, you know, squeezed. I dedicated in my acknowledgments to two of the sitters. Because right. there would have been no way that I would have been able to write this without them. And I, I've lately been seeing like at prize ceremonies and stuff, women saying, uh, usually women again, Zeb, saying, right. you know, I wouldn't have been able to do this without my babysitter or right. caregiver. Yeah. Right, 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 right. So the message to men is to start recognizing the people in their yeah. lives. Yeah. Well, recognizing that you're <laughs> depending usually yeah. on your wife or your For partner, sure. whoever is taking care. Like that's your dependence. Your uh-huh. art of dependence is you're asking somebody else to care for somebody else who's dependent. A hundred And that's why you're getting so much work done. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yeah. One of, you know, you just brought me back to, we just had a lot of guests for Shabbat in our home. And like my husband, he's so kind. He like, the first thing he says is thank you to my wife for making all this happen. And he's, Aww. I mean, it's very, it's very nice, but you know what? Now I think about it. Like, Wow to him that he could publish publicly acknowledge like, yeah, I don't come here and sit on my table full of wonderful food and guests like a king if somebody wasn't making it all happen. Right. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So it's a, it's an, it's, a, this is, this is really, it's almost like, it's like the foundation. It's like being a mensch. <laughs> let's yeah. go back. Yeah. Let's go back to the basics, America. <laughs> I know. I know. I feel that way. I feel that way. I mean, you know, and it's so funny in our organization where we're, we're, we're we're very into that. We, we do, me and my colleague do think in Yiddish sometimes, you know, my grandmother spoke Yiddish. So I like Suris alert is what we call, like, if something's going to be trouble, we're like, it's a Suris alert. And then, yeah, like being a bench is a crucial part of right. running this organization. Cause you know, we're dealing with a lot of people who are vulnerable um, yeah. and need us. And, you know, and you don't want, and also are really talented and you want them yes. to feel empowered and willing to ask for help. Yeah. 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 So what are, what are some action steps that you want, you would like people when they read the book that they take, you know, cause at the end of the day, it's all in the action, right? Like we can read the book, but what do you want people to take from this and actually implement? Right. So there's a bunch of things. I mean, I think this art of dependence is like a mindset change that I'm really hoping people will internalize. I think, I hope that political figures and business folk will stop constantly crediting themselves and start to, mm. and, but also when you see that and you're an employer, you have to think about your workers, right? Yeah. Suddenly it's not you that did this. It's your workers. You're like, okay, maybe I have to give them better health insurance plan. <laughs> you know what I mean? But like encourage their union activity. Like, like there's like levels of this, which are more complex than just what we can do. You know, with, right. I think within families, it's understanding dependence and, you know, partner seeing the partner who's held, who's more dependent on by the more vulnerable people right. as doing this incredible labor. Right. So that's like a recognition too. Um, yeah. And I think on the societal level, it's things like, you know, encouraging worker cooperatives and, you know, other kinds of new forms of more mutual um, workplaces, more mutual uh, 
kinds of social care, you know, like there, there was a mutual aid movement during the pandemic uh, to encourage that. Um, and, you know, there's something called uh, participatory budgeting, which is people mm-hmm. being part of their municipal government and kind of deciding, helping decide where funds go in the municipal government. That seems very it's civic, you know, it's both civic, it's educative. Right. It's like people being part of things. I mean, what you're saying, like that is harder probably in the secular world to say to your friends, like I need help with babysitting. Right. And that was one of my points with squeeze actually, like it's like to try to be more transparent about where you're at financially and in ter- terms of labor, but it's very hard to do. I mean, it's not, well, there's not I mean, such a safe space to be like, Oh, I really need daycare and I can't afford a sitter or whatever it is, you know, I can't find one. Yeah. And part of it is we haven't normalized conversations about money at all. Like it's, it's not, it's, it's still so taboo, you know, and it's still so late and it's so emotional for people. It's so vulnerable period. Yeah. And that's why I have actually a chapter you might like called inequality therapy. Mm. That's about that, um, that, that this is where the Hasidic man was subject in that book, uh, in that chapter, because he, you know, having therapy that recognizes economic and class problems, you know, Mm -hmm. class related problems and injuries, instead of just, you know, therapies, normally it's about actualizing mindfulness, like you're going to supposed to become more productive and, but it doesn't necessarily always take on board, you know, the, the problems that people have that have to do with not, you know, job loss with like things like inflation with things like, uh, you know, abusive childhoods that had to do with people not having enough resources, you know, so inequality, I found a bunch of different therapists and also things peer to peer counselors who were dealing with this head on. Mm -hmm. And that that was another kind of mutualism I found that was, would get us beyond this like self actualization and into a different level of healing for people with trauma. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that because I run an online program and people often ask me, why don't you do one-on-one coaching? And I do, but like I really prefer the group experience because there's so much healing that happens just by knowing that you're not the only one with this issue. Like we've, we have it. We've, you know what I mean? Like just, uh, just normalizing the conversation and you're struggling with debt and, or you're arguing with your husband about money or whatever, you know, or your student loans are, you know, crippling. We've been there. We've been there. We, yeah, except, oh, oh, you too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, t- what is this program? Tell me about it. I, I, I'm curious. Now, this is maybe I would have put you in my book. So, tell me about like what was the what's the that's it, people. I'm in the next book. Elisa's starting to think about the next one. <laughs> but so, like, how many people are in the in the class? Like, what, so it depends it? on the. Right now, we have twenty. Last time we did it, I think we have twenty five. I want to say we also have a membership, and that's alumni. And again, we continue these conversations, right? Because we're all always growing. So basically, literally, it really is money mindset and management at the same time, because we can't learn all the technical parts of managing money if we haven't dealt with our mindset as well. And that's always going to be something that you're going to be tackling all throughout, right? Um, because, you know, you you heal one part, but then your inner child comes later on with something that happens or whatever it is. So we go through a process of, you know, 
learning what our mindset around money is, how to deal with whatever it is we want to change that to be, how to do that, right? And then we get into a lot of the management pieces. And a lot of it, honestly, is a lot of the financial literacy, like, oh, I did not know that. Oh, cool. That is actually something that I could do. It's not as complex as it's made seem by the financial services industry. Oh, and I I could actually look at my money in an organized way. I could actually talk to my husband about money. How does one do that? So a lot of that goes into the 10 weeks. Yeah. Yeah, we should bring you on. <laughs> <laughs> I know I need a door like I should be your student. Well, maybe that could be our mutual aid. <laughs> there anyway, we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There yeah. we go. It's like that kind of availability, right? To swapping skills to, you know, having trades with people. And um, there we go. Listen, I'm working yeah. on a book. There we go. You can help me write that book. That's <laughs> up for months. My husband keeps telling me what's happening with the book. What's happening? I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't tell. Don't talk to me about the book. <laughs> Um, Alisa, let's, now that we are, you know, you told us a little bit about your grandparents, but I always, you know, I always like to ask people and explore family from, uh, explore, explore a a little bit of an angle that, um, I guess it's not totally unrelated to what you shared about your grandparents, but what were some of the lessons that you learned growing up about money, about earning a livelihood and, and that kind, that sort of thing that you maybe think they, served you in adulthood, or perhaps you've had to completely rethink? What were some of those lessons growing up in your parents' yeah, household? I mean, I I didn't know much about money. <laughs> yeah, me either, by I, the way. I grew up in this kind of what would be a middle precariat now. It's like my parents had taught at community college, and now they then they taught at four-year college. Mm-hmm. They were from working-class backgrounds, you know, um, and, you know, I just sort of was like, oh, okay, I'll get a College, you know, I thought, oh, it's just going to be reproducing their lives in that way. I could just get a. I went to grad school, and no, it was not like that. By the time I entered the academic world, it was like there, you know, it was really hard to get jobs, and you had to sort of teach while you were going to school. And I was like, I can't, I couldn't handle it. So that was actually why I became a journalist. So that's one one piece. But I think, um, I mean. I think this part of what I could try to confront in bootstrapping is my own bootstrapping qualities as being this kind of vaguely very influenced by my immigrant grandparents. And that sort of like have to, but it's slightly different. It's not about like fame and fortune. It's sort right. of about productivity and being useful. And so, so it was like a useful being impactful, useful, mm-hmm. you know, good, you know, all this kind of stuff. Like, Yes. Um, but that's still, you're driving yourself and driving like, and during the pandemic, it was really clear to me when I was like, started baking bread, like everybody else, but I was like, I have to make it perfect. And the, I mean, I'm sure your hall is like amazing. Now I'm like, want to go over to Yael's yes, house. I've, I've, I've practiced a lot. Okay. My first yeah. hall, I don't even want to tell you what it was like. Okay. Part and I was like, like, it's a, it's gummy. It's like, and then, a, and then, so then I started doing it again and again, you know, like I started running outside more and I was up to six months, you know, it's like, I couldn't just do what, and I'm like, not even that serious. I mean, as a runner, but I'm like, well, you know, just, it got like, and I was like, I really want to question this. This is not. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'm still caught in a lot of those things. Um, yeah. still caught in it. And like, one thought I had also was that like, there is a kind of, uh, the sort of red state Horatio Alger version is being this independent guy with, you know, who can, you know, support your family and then the right. sort of more blue state democratic version is like self-actualization but mm-hmm. there are two sides of the same coin because self-actualization can also you can put a lot of pressure on yourself to be right. 
you know, more mindful or like more truly yourself. And then I'm like, why am I not truly myself? You know, don't get distracted when you meditate. Yeah, no, no, exactly. Like I'm not doing it right. I'm not doing it right. I I actually had a hilarious session with somebody around that. And I was like, I don't feel like they're like, rest your face. I'm like, I don't know. I I was like, I I literally was like, I I was like, I'm not, I started talking, of course. I talk all the time. And I was like, oh, you know, but I, you know, I'm not resting my face right there. Like, rest your face. I'm like, wait, how do you even do that? <laughs> and then I was like, I don't think this is working for me. It was like, really, it was inadvertently like a Woody Allen mindfulness oh class. Gosh. Yeah. And you know what? I just, I think also I'm a child of the eighties and the nineties. I just think there was also such a, we were so ingrained with this, like, especially as women, like, you got to work hard. And it's like this, like you, you know, and be assertive and you can do it and you can do it. And like the harder you work, you know, the more ceilings you're going to break and you can do everything. And it's like, like we became, I see it in myself. Even my husband tells me to this day, it's like, you know, like you could take a break. Like, you know, life doesn't have to be hard. You don't, you don't, you don't have to work so hard, but there's, there's a chip, you know, like, Oh no, we worked in investment banking and we worked 60 hours work weeks, you know, like, like that's how you make, no, relax people. <laughs> no, it's funny. Like, so that's like, I think, um, you know, we, I don't know, like a couple of weeks ago, I went in the middle of the day, in the middle of work day, I went to a museum in a different part of Brooklyn. Were you and I just guilty? I, no, I was like, oh, good. The, my friend who I was with was like, oh my God, this is a work day. And I was like, yeah. And I'm going to get lots of ideas when I see this art. I mean, you know, cause like it's creative profession and I hire yes. photographers and for you, I was like, I was like, this is part of like, and that kind of, I feel like that's the way that I'm confronting this striving yeah. sensibility is by, I mean, unfortunately I usually have to like pretend it's part of the, you know, to myself, you know, that it's all part of the same exactly. thing. So like I'm going to see the museum because maybe I'll find someone and it'll make my work yep. better and other people's, you know, right. where, but I think I I've come to understand that I'm less productive if I'm not, when I'm my, yeah. when I haven't run and I haven't let some air in. I haven't talked to my friends on the phone. You know, I talked to like, I have one, my best friend, I talk to her like every day on, the, you know, I need to have those moments with people. Yeah. yeah. Um, and with experience that's not um utilitarian and mm-hmm. instrumental. Yeah. And uh so yeah, because I was thinking the girl, the girl bosses, like there was one phrase from Rachel Hollis, who wrote Girl Wash Your yeah. Face, one of these books she writes, I absolutely refuse to watch you wallow. And it's like, oh come on, you know, Aww. like let people wallow, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So 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 then I I guess now that when we read you talked before about radical self-help but really now I'm thinking like when you we read all these self-help books we get a little bit discerning because I mean maybe we're internalizing this this grit message all wrong and to a fault. Yeah, I mean I I found the the grit I actually I mean I this book is also an attack on ideas like grit and resiliency even Mm -hmm. because they're not resiliency puts the blame often, not always. I mean, there's resiliency in like, you know, climate change, uh, you know, sites of climate change where communities are trying to become more resilient. I mean, there's real resilience, um, but there's also this kind of resiliency where you're trying to force people who are vulnerable or suffering right structurally in need to like you know man up and survive on their own right and it's like again taking the pressure off of the systems and putting it back onto the people and then using a like a nice gooey word to do that like you know like Angela Duckworth she wrote grit 
yeah, and they have yeah. grit work workshops and grit skills. And, you know, when I looked into it, grit's been critiqued by more than five studies and peer reviewed journals. Oh, um, really? I did not know that. Yeah. And educators, I love this. One educator wrote something about grit. This uh, New York City school teacher said, what frustrates me is that the discussion around grit is always in reference to low performing schools. So like, if you look at a lot of them, they're always the lower perform, the poorer regions in the country. And the assumption is that his students are not successful, you know, because they don't work hard enough. Oh, but you know, it's blaming the victim rather than taking up larger questions of socioeconomic justice. Right. So you're like, why are kid, why are you not gritty rather than, you know, kid, you're at a school with, um, not enough books and like 35 kids in the class, right? Like, right. So it just, and, and you probably had no breakfast, but right. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It puts eaten. the question elsewhere, right? Right. Um, so yeah, I, I it, one, there's this person in my, uh, that I talked to at great length who was raised incredibly poor, really abusive family. And, and she has, she survived and she became this counselor, first person in her college to go to, go to, um, college and, she's, she's like, I'm not resilient. Resilient is only a word for having resources. That's what the word resilient means. She's like, I was, I was lucky. And I was, I mean, I think she was smart too, but that's different. You know, you you Uh can be smart without being resilient. Resilient is putting it back on people, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so good. I'm loving this conversation. Elisa, any last, uh, any parting words for our listeners? Uh, yeah. I mean, I have, you know, the phrases that I have is, you know, there are no self-made men, you know, mutual mutualism is the way forward. Right. Yeah. I mean, even Darwin, who we think of, you know, survival of the fittest, he wrote, and I write about this in the book about mutual sympathy of like animals having, uh, these connections of, you know, ant farms. And this is like that down to, you know, biological, our biological truth is that we're mm. connected to one another you know, from animals, humans. It's so interesting because I didn't think this conversation was going to take this angle, but I keep going back to the beauty of Judaism. And I'm sure you weren't expecting this, but I can't help but share it. Like there is a truth to the way God organized things that there is a communal experience. And I see my life because I live in a, in a close community and I observe Shabbat and all the things. And I see that again, the fact that men get together three times a day and they form these friendships and they know what's happening with each other's family. And I know your experience with that man was a little bit different from what I'm describing perhaps, but just that fact that we create these friendships and this dependency, like if one is struggling, the other one can offer a job or a business advice or whatever. And I see myself like, you know, sometimes my kids are like, mommy, like, can we leave already? I'm like, no, because you know what? There's there's a meal in the synagogue and this is my time with my friends and we catch up. And the whole week we're very busy and I get to have adult conversations and I get to learn what they're struggling with and they get to hear about my work and my kids. And my right, There's something so beautiful about that. So just to plug for Judaism right there that I guess I hadn't, I, I didn't even realize how this conversation would bring me there. Now I'm really, now I'm really like, wow, I value that experience so much. <laughs> well, I'm glad I brought you there. But um, so I'm saying, of course, the reporter to me, I want to know all about your community. What temple is come, this? Come, come, where, come, where do you live? Where do you live? I live in Houston, Texas. What? Oh my yes. God. I live in Houston, Texas. Um, but I'm, I'm Chabad. I'm Lubavitch. So, you know, there's like, it's like this friendly, warm 
Hasidic environment where, you know, we're just one big happy fam, not happy family. We have our issues. Everybody has their issues, but there definitely is, you know, that experience of being part of something bigger than yourself, you know, um, and celebrating, you know, holidays together and happy occasions together and sad occasions together also, you know, um, and, and how many children do you have? I have four. Oh, wow. I have four. four. I'm an only child, though, and I didn't grow up up, up observant. So, you know, a lot of this is like, wow, I see, you know, like I can appreciate certain things maybe from another angle that maybe other people like don't even think about. Um, So, yeah, I have four children. Two actually don't even live at home anymore because they're away in school. Um, Talk about tuition cost. (laughs) And then two are here still home in day school. Did they go to school out of state or did they? Yeah. One of them goes to school in Detroit, Michigan, and the other one goes to school in Chicago. Yep. 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 All right. So let me remind everybody that the book is books bootstrapped, liberating ourselves from the American dream. There you have it. And it's ready for pre-order, right, Alisa? It is. And that always helps authors. Just FYI. Yes, yes. So where can we pre-order the book? On your website, on Amazon, where? Everywhere? Amazon, probably. Yeah. (laughs) We'll do whatever you tell us. Amazon. (laughs) Alisa, thank you. So wait, what's next? I I, I can't even imagine that you don't have like an upcoming project. I do. I do have a thought. Tell us. But um, I'm really interested. I mean, this is sounds, it's kind of out there, but there's the use of plant-based medicines, like, like drugs, like real drugs to help treat trauma. And I'm interested in the connection between that for people who've suffered abuse and veterans. So I don't know if there's a book in that, but I definitely want to write about it. Yeah. Okay, good. So keep visiting, keep taking breaks during the day, get the creative juices flowing and come back and talk to us. Thank you so much, Elisa. This was so fun. Thank you. It was really fun. Great to meet you, y'all. Thanks again to the lovely Elisa Quart for being here. Her upcoming book is Bootstrapped, Liberating Ourselves from the American Dream. And it's now available for pre-sale, pre-order on Amazon. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you for being here. I know you have a lot going on as we do all. And I so appreciate that you take the time to listen while you exercise, cook, drive around. I don't know. Let me know where you listen from. Please head over to the review section of Apple Podcasts and leave a review and rating. I'd love to hear from you. And that is really one of the best ways to help the show grow. I'm going to be back with you Friday with another Ask Yael episode. So be sure to leave me your questions. DM me on Instagram at Yael Trush or email me Yael at Yael See you here Friday. Have a great day.